Let's pray. Father, as we have heard Your Word read, now as I seek to stand and proclaim it, I ask that You would be our teacher. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are visiting, we are working our way through the book of Romans. Um, Last week we looked at chapter 9, verses 1 through 24, or really 1 through 25, I believe. And um, we're backing up to, um, did I say Romans 9, 1 through 24? So we're backing up to verse 22 to get a running start at uh, this passage again. And I want to begin by asking... Um, or pointing out one thing, and that is, isn't it strange that by and large the Jewish people do not believe in their own Messiah? For the most part, they've rejected Him as a people. And of course, there are Jews that uh, have become Christians. We hear about Jews for Jesus. We hear about the term completed Jews uh, for Jews who have have trusted in, in uh, Christ or Messianic Jews. And uh, they are certainly um, many, but comparatively speaking, they are a very slim minority. And it's equally strange that Gentiles have been far more open to Jesus Christ, the, the, the Jewish Messiah. The great percentages of believers in Christ are Gentiles rather than Jews. And so the question is, why is that the case? Or to put the same question in a more pointed fashion, why is it that Gentiles have found what the Jews so sought so zealously to possess, while the Jews seemed to almost completely miss it? Paul addresses this question from different angles in the book of Galatians, also in the book of 2 Corinthians. But here in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, he gives his most comprehensive answer to this question. And we saw last week the beginning of Paul's answer uh, when he spoke of God's purpose and election in verse 11. And uh, the beginning of his answer can really be summed up in Romans 9, verses 15 and 16 where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or effort or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, God calls a people to Himself according to His sovereign mercy. So Paul's answer in his wide scope is that God chose to call more Gentiles to Himself than He did Jews after the resurrection of Christ. And in the final analysis, the recipients of God's mercy are determined by God alone. We looked very briefly at verses 22 through 24 as I was concluding last week, but I want to take another look at these three verses to firmly establish in our minds what it means for Paul to say that God calls a people to Himself according to His own sovereign mercy. 
also, if you'll look with me at verse 22, Paul uses a rhetorical question to state that God desires to punish the wicked. Verse 22, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make His power, make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So, he uses this rhetorical question as a device to state that God does indeed desire to punish the wicked. And this thought is expressed all the way back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, remember uh, Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But although God desires to punish the wicked, He relents. He patiently waits uh, for a time. And Paul explains God's patience in verse 23. But before we look at verse 23, I want you to see what Paul says at the end of verse 22. At the end of verse 22, Paul calls the wicked vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So why would Paul use this terminology, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, he does so because of what he said in the previous three verses, in verses 19 through 21. So in verses 19 through 21, you will remember from last week, Paul said, why then, or, or you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder. Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, God is the potter. And we are the clay. And He prepares from this same lump of clay some vessels to be objects of His wrath and therefore be subject to His holy justice while other vessels from this very same lump of clay are prepared to be objects of His mercy that will be lavished with His love and His grace. So God is the potter, one lump of clay. He separates the lumps. One lump for um, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Other vessels, vessels of mercy that are lavished with His love and with His grace. So now look at me. Uh, look, sorry. Look with me at verse twenty-three. In verse twenty-three, God says He is patiently enduring the ongoing rebellion and hatred of sinful mankind in order that He might lavish His elect with mercy and with salvation. So verse 23, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. And verse 24 says, this goes for all humanity, whether you are Jewish or whether you are Gentile. So verse 24, even us whom He has also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. So the same lump of clay, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, He makes some uh, vessels for 
um, vessels of wrath, others vessels of His mercy. And then to underscore his point, Paul uses two passages from the book of Hosea to illustrate that God's sovereign mercy is not a new concept uh, that is being uh, introduced. In fact, the entire history of the Jewish people is a record of how God calls a people to Himself who were not former, who were not His people, and He calls them and claims them by His mercy. For instance, Abraham. Abraham was not originally an Israelite. He was a moon-worshipping Chaldean. Uh, from the land we now know as Iraq or Babylon. But God called Abraham and made him into a vessel of His mercy. And He called him to Himself, and in so doing, called to Himself a people who were not His people, and then He made them His people. So, again, um, these two quotes from... uh, from Hosea, verse 25 and 26. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And then to further illustrate God's sovereign initiative, Paul quotes two other passages from the Old Testament, this time from the book of Isaiah. And these two passages say that God does not by any means determine His choices of who will be His vessels of mercy or His vessels of wrath based on Jewish nationality. Rather, God chose a mere remnant of the Israelites for salvation. So out of all the Israelites, He chose just a remnant, just a small portion of those Israelites for salvation. So verses 27 through 29, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Does that surprise you? Does that surprise you that God's mercy is so narrowly focused? It probably doesn't surprise any of us that the vast majority of the Israelites did not know God. And we know this because we read our Old Testaments. We see how rebellious uh, they were from the time that God called them to Himself. And we know from the New Testament how they rejected Jesus and sent Him to the cross. And so we know that a, that, a, uh, that a small remnant were actually saved. But it is certainly surprising to hear Paul say that God designed it to be that way. That from the time God called Abraham, He had determined that only a remnant of His descendants would actually be saved. Even though His descendants would grow as numerous as the sand on the seashore. He quotes from Isaiah, only a remnant will be saved. Now how are we to understand this narrow focus 
when it comes to God showing His mercy? Is it fair that He is narrowing this focus? Is God less than loving and merciful because He's narrowing this focus? Well, in order to understand God's sovereign mercy, we must first understand our situation as sinful human beings. You and I and every person in the world are born as spiritually bankrupt. In fact, every person who has ever lived except for Jesus Christ, regardless of his or her moral or religious state, has been spiritually bankrupt. As a race, ever since Adam sinned against God, we have been spiritually and morally bankrupt. As Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, and, and you were dead in the trespasses and in sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind reflecting or paralleling what Paul is saying here in Romans 9, that some people are, were prepared beforehand to be vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. Paul says here in Ephesians 2, we're children of wrath. Or listen to the way that God described the Israelites right from the beginning of His relationship with them in Deuteronomy 9. God called them out of Egypt... And before they are going to enter into the promised land, He says to them in Deuteronomy 9, you're rebellious now, you're going to be rebellious in the future because you have always been rebellious. So He says in Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, Do not say in your heart after the Lord has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of the nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that He may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came into this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Or the NIV says you have been stiff-necked in its translation. And so it's against this this background that we must understand God's sovereign mercy. The point is, none of us deserve to be saved. And rather, it's entirely the opposite case. The Israelites genuinely deserved God's full wrath and curse. We, too, genuinely deserve God's full wrath and curse. And so if you cannot accept this about yourself, you will never be able to fully understand the concept of God's sovereign mercy. God did not have to save any of us. 
God should not have saved any of us. Look at verse 29. And Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That would be all of us. Sodom and Gomorrah. Not just because they were destroyed in a moment, but also because of the great wickedness that um, that exhibited uh, that they exhibited um, at the time in which they were destroyed. And he says, "If it were not for God's mercy, this would be me, and this would be you." And I know there's typically an objection that is raised at this point, and it goes something like this. What if a person wants to be saved that they truly in their heart want to be saved, but God hasn't chosen them and He hasn't called them? It doesn't seem right if they want to be saved and they can't. Well, the answer is that no one, not you, not me, nobody would ever be saved without God first choosing them and then calling them to Himself. In other words, our only hope for salvation is this doctrine of election, this remnant that is chosen by grace. Paul illustrates this principle in the last part of our passage in Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. And basically, uh, what's happening here is the Jews pursued God. Verse 31. In Romans 9, verse 31, but Israel... But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So the picture here in verse 31 is Israel striving and pursuing this righteousness of God. So they're pursuing. And they pursued God with great zeal. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. Paul says, "...for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God." according to knowledge. So they're pursuing, they're pursuing with great zeal, but they refuse to submit to Him. Verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The picture here is that the Jews are running this race along the path to know God, along the path to be righteous. And along the way, God told them repeatedly about the Messiah. He told them just after Adam's fall. He told them about uh, one who would be born of Eve who would be their Redeemer. He told them all the way through the Old Testament of their Messiah. And then He sent them many prophets to testify about the Messiah. He also sent them the prophets to warn them about the consequences of their rebelliousness. And God even sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, um, in, as a human being. He, he, Jesus Christ came and came into our world, took on human flesh, and preached to them face to face about the way to be righteous in God. And yet Paul paints this picture in verses 32 and 33 as Jesus being right in the midst of them right in the middle of the path to righteousness. And, and instead of um, 
And, well, and what he's doing is he's pointing them to himself and he's saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest to your souls. And he holds his arms open to them. But instead of coming and embracing him, they try and run him over. And so, uh, verses 32 and 33 in uh, chapter 9. Why did they not succeed? Because they did, they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay a stone in Zion of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. They stumbled over Jesus Christ. They were not willing to receive Him because they were so eager to pursue their own righteousness by their own works. They thought, if I can just be obedient enough, if I can just be faithful enough in my religious duties, if I can just um, do these things and, and find God's purpose for my life and live in keeping with that purpose, then I'll be able to raise myself up to God. But they ended up stumbling and tripping over the Lord Jesus Christ. They were offended at Him instead of trusting in Him. Because to come to Jesus Christ and to trust in Him means that you have to recognize and confess that you are unrighteous, that you have nothing that you bring to the table that is to persuade God to love you, that all that you have to offer Him is your sin. And so that offended them. No, we're better than that. We're children of Abraham. We are Israelites, they said. And they became offended. So the Jews rejected Him ultimately because God had not called them. They pursued another way of righteousness. They pursued. They were zealous. But they pursued another way of righteousness ultimately because God had not called them to Himself. Meanwhile, what are the Gentiles doing? Well, they're living life. They're hating God. They're not thinking about God. And yet, what does it say in verse 30? What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. Why did they attain it when they were not pursuing? Why did they attain it when they didn't know God, didn't care to know God? God called them to Himself. That ultimately is the determining factor. God sovereignly calls people to in His mercy. What made them any better than the Jews? Nothing. In fact, they were not even pursuing much less were they pursuing with zeal. They simply were not pursuing Him at all. They were worse morally than the Jews. But then, what does God do? He calls them My people, and He made them to be children of the living God. Now, to conclude, there's this unspoken belief that if I try really hard, God owes me. And that could be, that could not be further from the truth. God requires of us perfect 
and complete righteousness. Nothing else will do. Earnest efforts and good intentions will never give you the perfect and complete righteousness that God requires of you. Only Jesus can give you that because He gives you His perfect, His complete righteousness. And that's why it must be a righteousness by faith. See verse 30? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. They placed their faith in Jesus and they received in return Jesus' righteousness. So if you're relying on yourself, this passage of Scripture says that you are ignorant of the true righteousness of God. Uh, chapter 10, verse 3. But being for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So where is your trust? Is it in Jesus Christ alone? Or is it in you? Is it in a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of you? I pray that it is in Jesus Christ alone. And then I want to make a second application. Uh, Because this doctrine of election that we've been talking about the last two weeks is not just about salvation. It is also essential for our growth in grace as Christians. Um, as, As Christians, we still have a lot of Romans chapter 7 in us. The very thing we want to do, we don't do. The very thing we hate, we end up doing. In other words, we're redeemed... We're new creations in Christ, but we're still broken people. And uh, Richard Loveless says that we all gravitate toward the assumption that we are justified by our level of sanctification. In other words, um, we all have within us this idea, even though we confess that Jesus Christ alone uh, is our Savior, we find our assurance in our... Uh, level of sanctification or in our obedience. Um, And he says, we start each day with our personal security resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or our recent achievements. Um, And since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we are inevitably moved to a self-righteousness which falsifies the, the record to achieve a sense of peace. In other words, what he's saying is that as Christians, what we are to do is we are to start with this foundation of my righteousness found in Jesus Christ alone. And this doctrine of election teaches us that our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ alone. His mercy called us to Himself. We... um, Whatever we were doing, whatever sins, whatever um, place we found ourselves in, we were children of wrath according to Ephesians chapter 2. And God calls us in His mercy to Himself. He gives us His righteousness through Jesus Christ. That is our foundation. That remains our foundation in this life and for all eternity. God never changes as I was teaching the children. His righteousness is firm. It is secure. It is solid. It is unchanging. And so, no matter 
the sins that we commit in our life, our foundation is solid and firm and unchanging because it is a foundation that is rooted and um, and grounded in Jesus Christ alone. And so, day by day as Christians, that is how we should start our day. Jesus, thank You for redeeming me. Thank You for this righteousness that I have not earned, that I don't deserve, that Jesus Christ gave me alone. And we start right there, and then that becomes the engine by which we live the Christian life. That is the engine um, by which uh, our lives are changed day by day. And the way we, we often pursue righteousness or, or, or growth in Christ is, is, well, I was disciplined today and I did my quiet times today. I avoided this sin and I uh, avoided that. I was especially faithful here. And all that shifting sand, if that's where we're basing our, uh, our hope and our assurance, we base it in Jesus Christ. And I want to take just a... I know we're just a little bit over. Um, but I want to take a couple of moments. Because I know that, uh, that it's very tempting. And probably uh, several of you might fall into this idea of, well, I have chronic pain. And maybe God doesn't love me because He's not taking the pain away. And that could not be further from the truth. Your assurance of God's love is founded in Jesus Christ. Or I have this issue that I struggle with or that issue I struggle with. Maybe I struggle with depression or with bipolar disorder or some addiction or ongoing anxiety. And because I struggle in these areas or I struggle with lust, or I struggle with accepting God's forgiveness, I struggle with anger, any of these different things. And we are um, fearful to come to God because we have these issues in our life. No. Come to Jesus Christ. Remember His full and complete uh, righteousness that He has given you that will never ever be taken away, that will never ever be shaken. And you come to God. God, I am a broken person because of the fall. And every one of us, I know, every one of us has areas of brokenness in our life. We've probably never ever told anybody else. Or maybe we've told a couple of other people. But we're broken people. And that brokenness causes us shame, causes us guilt, and it causes us to lose our joy in Christ and we, we pull back from God because of these areas of brokenness? No. Take your stand every day upon the firm, the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. And these areas of brokenness, whether it be things like depression or things like issues with anger. They may still they may go with you your whole life. But as you go to God and seek him, you'll be able little bit by little bit 
to deal with these things. Again, they may never go away, but you'll be able to deal with them and grow in the Lord in spite of them. And please hear me. Um, As I mention these things, some of you may be tempted to say, think that I'm saying that those things are sinful. That those things, just because I struggle with those things, I'm therefore unacceptable to God. I'm not saying that at all. We are all broken. Martin Luther, in talking about temptation, he said we're all going to have things that we struggle with. Just like he said, we all are going to see the birds flying overhead. Jesus Himself was tempted in every way like we are. He said, but it becomes a problem when we let the birds make a nest in our hair. In other words, He's not saying, okay, well, the birds fly over and we can indulge a little sin. That's not what He's saying. He's saying that there are temptations that are going to beset all of us. There are areas of brokenness where we are going to to struggle. And so you look to Jesus Christ. Look to His righteousness. Don't seek this righteousness according to works that the Jews sought after. And they sought after it with zeal. But rather... Seek after the righteousness that comes by faith. And as people, as as Christians, seek the Lord by faith every day because you are grounded in His righteousness every day and forever. Let's pray together. Father, we all struggle in so many ways. We thank You for the firm, the sure, the solid, the complete, the everlasting foundation of righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to take our stand firmly there and upon that foundation deal with the struggles that uh, continue in our life. Lord, we we get it backwards so often. But help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to keep our hope focused. Uh, upon Him and help our faith to always be securely locked in to Him. We pray in His name. Amen.